Shalom Aleichem. Welcome to the Shmooze, the Yiddish Book Center's podcast. I'm Lisa Newman, and on today's episode, we're remembering Jerry Stiller. Born in 1927, he died on May 11, 2020, at the age of 92. I'm joined on a call today with Carrie O'Brien, an actor, Yiddish translator, and multi-talented performer who worked with and sat down for a great interview with Jerry Stiller back in 2012. Karen, uh, thanks so much for joining me today to talk about the the actor, the man, uh, the husband, the father. Um, so, who was the uh, who was the Jerry Stiller that you knew? Oh well, Jerry was a, an incredible human being to spend time with. He was, you know, someone who radiated with uh, that a beautiful spirit of uh, who had lived a creative life for decades. I, I actually met him at the funeral of my great mentor, uh, Luby Kattison Buloff, whom I studied Yiddish theater with. His, her daughter, Barbara Buloff, was uh, Jerry's psychotherapist and Anne's psychotherapist, and they were very close. And they spoke at Luba's funeral, and I spoke at Luba's funeral, and that's how we met. And we reconnected a few years later, uh, and we started working on a few projects together, and I got to know him a little bit more. And he was just a huge inspiration uh to me and in my creative life as such a uh, such a you know a rabbi of creativity such a, a great guide you know when you see him on king of queens or seinfeld you see this screaming persona that's very humorous but in person he was so kind and so gentle and um it was a, quite a contrast from the mask that he portrayed on television so I think Jewish humor um, could be a topic of many podcast <laughs> interviews, but I wonder if you could talk a little bit about it relative to Stiller. Well, Jerry grew up on the Lower East Side. His father was actually born in, on the Lower East Side, um, and I think he wanted to be a musician of some sort, but he ended up becoming a bus driver. And his parents, it was you know during the Great Depression, and they struggled a lot financially, so they were always moving house. He was always changing schools. But one day he was walking by the um, Henry Street settlement, and he saw a light on, and he went in, and he saw people performing or rehearsing on stage, and he found his spot. And like so many of the great artists of both the American theater and the Yiddish theater, the settlement houses that taught drama and music uh, were his introduction uh, to it and his, his original training for it and just opened up a whole world. And he was lucky enough to, his, his parents seemed to be supportive. I don't think that they really sort of pushed back a whole lot in terms of his pursuing this. I mean, there was a little bit, <laughs> but well, it's, yeah. It's hard to say. I mean, he was on his own. You know, he went to um, university on the GI Bill. He went to Syracuse University and it was up to him to make a living. Um, I'm sure they had some worries about it, but, he, you know, he started doing well uh, pretty early on. So I thought um, just to talk about sort of his early roots and connection to uh Jewishness, Yiddish culture, etc. Um, if we can play this uh, little short passage where he recalls an evening where he had hoped to listen to his favorite radio show, The Lone Ranger. So let's play that now and then come back with a couple of questions. 
the, the Lone Ranger was my life at, at the, probably around eight, nine years old. And uh, we lived in East New York, Brooklyn. And uh, at 7.30, I think that was the hour, 7 o'clock, I, I would get right down on the floor with the Atwater Kent radio and listen to Lone Ranger until one day my Uncle Jaime arrived into our household. He had had a battle with his wife and was laying low and living with us. And he got to the radio just before I did and put on the Yiddish Stunde, which was called the Yiddish Hour, uh, on WEBD, and he took over the, the radio. And here I was, it's, it's suddenly without the Lone Ranger. And uh, my I, my mother, uh, who I, I, I told her, that, my God, what's going on here, Mom? She said, well, he's your uncle, and you've got to really give it up. And you, The Lone Ranger will be on tomorrow or the next day. You can always have the Lone Ranger. So we used to battle for that spot, you see. So I loved that anecdote about the, the Lone Ranger radio show and how his uncle takes control of the radio one evening. He's planning to listen to his favorite show, and he ends up listening to uh, Yiddish radio. Um, so he's the, his father was a son of immigrants from Galatia, uh, and he drove a taxi, as you mentioned, um, later a bus. His mother was born in Poland. She was a homemaker, and uh, she also hailed from the, one of the cities that are towns that Besheva Singer wrote about in um, his work. So how do you think all of this informed his work, or did it, these, these roots? Well, I, I definitely think it did. You know, uh, I remember when I was translating a play by Dovid Pinsky, Yankel Der Schmied, there was these two parents that just end endlessly kept screaming at each other in a humorous way. And, and you could see the, the, the toll it was taking on the sun. And I think that is, you know, such a great Yiddish theater archetype. And it's also exactly what you see um, when Jerry plays one half of the Costanza parents, you know, just totally destroying George Costanza with the endless war that he had with his wife, Estelle. Um, so I think that is an archetype lifted out of Yiddish theater and also of the, the generation of, of his parents' generation. Um, sometimes he has said that his father was an inspiration for the screaming Costanza. Uh, just the, and you know, his parents did fight a lot and maybe they weren't necessarily, uh, you know, the best match for one another, or maybe, maybe they were a good match and it was just the circumstances of, of immigration and the depression and the difficulties of making a living in New York City at the time um, that created their spirit. So, and, you know, and Jerry had studied, he, he knew some religious Jewish texts and prayers and he was from a Yiddish speaking family. Um, he spoke English, but he certainly knew uh, lots of Yiddish as well. And um, so that definitely wound in to his, his work. In, in, there's a wonderful sort of, I, I'm going to try to quote this, um, which, which sort of speaks to this in your interview, where he says, some, my connection with being Jewish was listening to Yiddish radio programs. Um, and then he suggests that he didn't do this by choice. And he went on to share that he used to make fun of Yiddish songs with his friends once they got out onto the street. And this may seem like a funny question to ask, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, when I was listening to that, 
and I was listening to some of the music that was referred to, I realized that there's sort of a pacing to that music and an underlying beat. And it almost feels like if that comes into some of his routine, his his comedy, um, certainly maybe in the in the character of uh, Costanza. Um, I wonder if you have any thoughts about that. Well, yeah, I have a lot of thoughts about that. I think about the underlanguage of kind of mainstream languages a lot. Um, for me, growing up uh, in Ireland and being exposed to Anglo-Irish literature, it was um, Irish Gaelic. That's what made uh, our I- English different from British English. Um, and I think for, you know, performers who came of age in 20th century New York, Yiddish very much fed um uh, New York English and became the 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 secret pattern often often um, beneath it that performers and and um, people who were great mimics and could just pick up different patterns would would definitely speak to and use and you know even we even have it now with the handful of Yiddish words that every New Yorker regardless of their background uh, uses and I definitely think that the as much as all of the Hollywood movies, which in and of themselves were influenced by Yiddish speakers, um, had an effect on Jerry. So did the the Yiddish radio and and the Yiddish language that he was exposed to every day of his growing up years. And um, you mentioned that he sort of started at the Henry Street Playhouse. Um, I think he was probably in, what, his was he in his teens yet, or was he yeah. even maybe a little bit younger? Oh, okay. I think he was a young teen. And, and then he went on from there, and he worked with a lot of the greats. Um, he was of the same sort of generation. Um, and he has his, his sort of place in that, uh, in that you know, uh, cohort, if I may. Mm-hmm. Um, did, did he maintain strong relationships with these people? What do you, do you think that they played off of one another? You mean who were his friendships throughout his life? Yeah. Or? Yeah. I guess that would be a more direct way of asking that question. Yeah. yeah. He, he was an unofficial, he and his wife, Anne were unofficial kind of leaders of New York city. Everybody knew them. Everybody loved them. They would have regular holiday parties for decades that um, actors and politicians and other people, their friends and neighbors would attend. Uh, They were the most generous people. Uh, They were always giving gifts. They were always um, helping other people out. They were, you can, you can see on Twitter, a lot of people have posted an ad that they did in the early nineties to try to get single payer healthcare. Um, They were always volunteering for politicians. They were so loved and everybody who met them and worked with them. If, again, if you just look at people's uh, reminiscences, reminiscences online, they just say, wow, these were the greatest, kindest, loving, most generous people that I ever worked with. And I can tell you from my own experience that that's very true. And it's also very rare in the entertainment industry. So they were just incredible people who kept all of their friends and, and made the effort to, to keep in touch with everyone. And they were very much New York-based. They didn't do the hop to the West Coast. Well, they'd like to stay at the Chateau Marmont when they were working out there, but uh, mm-hmm. they, yeah, they lived on the Upper West Side, and you could always see 
Jerry and Ann walking around the Upper West Side or walking around Riverside Park. And um, they were involved in a project to plant trees in the city. Uh, you know, you'd ask them to do something for the civic good, and they always did it. So he met Ann Mira, um, who would go on to be his wife and collaborator of, I think, almost 60 years or so. Yes, about um, 62 years. Yeah, and by all accounts, it was a really an amazing partnership, both personally and professionally. And again, I'm going to stop here and just uh, do a little clip, if we can, from uh, an Ed Sullivan show, um, in which I think that the, the back and forth is very funny. Um, and and Mira converted to Judaism, um, and it may play out a little bit in this clip. So let's listen to this and come back in a minute. You like to dance? Oh, I'm crazy about dancing. Maybe we can go dancing some night. Oh, I'd love it. Would you like to go dancing tonight? Tonight? Yeah. I'd love to go dancing. Wonderful. They're having a dance tonight at my Sodality. At your what? My Sodality. What's that? That's a girls' organization in my parish. Oh, you mean like the Hadassah? (laughs) What's that? That's a girls' organization in my parish. It's a really fun exchange, and it's, I kind of think it speaks to their playfulness and also um, their ability to sort of convey in ways um, aspects of their background, um, for lack of a better word. Tell me about that relationship and what you saw in terms of the, the how it played out in the collaboration. Well, uh, you know, they met when they were both young actors starting out. They met in an agent's office, and uh, and was from an Irish Catholic background and family and Jerry was from a Jewish family. And it was Jerry's idea to use that as the basis of um, their comedy when they became a really successful comedy team. And that continued on for quite some time. But in the seventies, they parted way. They ended their partnership because they felt that they had enough of playing those archetypes off of one another and they needed to go on and do their own work if they were to preserve their relationship. Uh, I was lucky enough to work with Jerry up in his apartment um, on the Upper West Side, and Anne was there, and we'd always chat as well. And she had an acerbic wit, and she was just, you know, really funny and really kind. But, you know, she didn't suffer fools lightly. So, uh, you know, if you said anything ridiculous or, you know, if you had ridiculous, what she thought of were political leanings that weren't in aligning with hers, she would absolutely... um, say something sharp and she uh but she was so loving and and her her morals and her um her passions and her beliefs of creating a better society of creating better new york of lifting people up of of helping people in difficult circumstances they were both huge supporters of the actors fund was always very much in evidence and you know they had a a a lovely banter and you know jerry loved to watch every old movie, you know, he's still thinking of the movies of the thirties and the forties that shaped his imagination and, and, you know, and would have enough of that, you know? And so they, they sparred in a, a a really um, funny way. And it was just, it was just uh, a pleasure and an honor to be able to, to witness it, but what made them exactly alike and I imagine what connected them together was their incredible belief in the artistic life, um, in, in, in keep pursuing the artistic life, in supporting people in pursuing that life, in, 
in creating a better city and a better world and in helping wherever you can. They both had tremendously large and compassionate hearts and souls, which they uh, regularly shared with everyone uh, who encountered them. And I, I wanted to ask you sort of what don't we know about Jerry Stiller that you observed, um, but you may have you may have already answered that question. Is there anything else that you would add to that? Well, um, he was really in touch with his, his Jewishness, and um, he would read uh, some of the commentary of Rabbi Tversky, I think was a rabbi that he, he liked to read from who had a book of days and he was just a very spiritual person, which sometimes actors become or always are, uh, you know, it's the energy moving through the body, whether it's in playing a role or, you know, invoking the ancestors or the spirits. And, and he was so uh, connected to his own culture. And, it, and he was a big believer in psychotherapy. He talked about this often in his, in his book and um, any interview he gave and, uh, he, he and Anne were so grateful to um, Barbara Buloff, their psychotherapist. And so he was always improving himself and improving his mind. And he was always, he loved to work. He would love to go over text and, which is, of course, a very Jewish thing, and just get the character just right, just perfect. And there was no rehearsal was too much for him. And Anne, uh, her technique was the opposite. She didn't like to waste time. She did it, she got it, it was perfect. And um, so he was just a wonderful model of how to live, and not only an artistic life, but, a, but an honorable life. And uh, he lived his, his values every day. I mean, it almost sounds like a hagiography here as I'm talking about him. Um, and he continued to be very funny and irreverent as well. But the, the truth is, he, he and Anne both were just two of the people who, who made New York City great and made people want to move to New York City and, and, and become like them. And, you know, that great, I always called him a Lamed Vavnik, that wonderful, uh, that wonderful Yiddish legend that there are 36 people, Lamed Vavniks, who are so good in the world that God will never um, create a flood or destroy the world ever again. And, you know, Jerry and Anne were were that. They were two truly good and generous and beautiful artistic spirits in the city. And and their loss is um, tremendous. It's it's fortunate that they have two brilliant artistic children that they've left in the world, but and and grandchildren as well. But their loss is is huge. Well, Karen, thank you so much for taking time to join me today to remember Jerry Stiller. Uh, and again, for the, the interviews that you conducted, um, I hope maybe we'll be able to figure out a way to share those. Um, they're really incredibly warm uh, and personal, and he really reveals so much about his life. So um, again, thank you so much for joining us uh, today, and we hope to talk to you again soon. Anytime. My pleasure. You've been listening to The Schmooze, a production of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. For more on Yiddish and Jewish culture, visit YiddishBookCenter.org. 
Today's podcast was coordinated by Sam Brivik and produced by Sarah Blakefeld. Be well, be healthy, and tune in again soon. Thank you.